Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Andrea Yates, Susan Smith, Diane Downs, and Amanda Stott Smith. What do all these women have in common? They are all filicidal mothers, better known as mothers who killed their children. Today, I will be telling you the story of Amanda Stott Smith. I found out about this story after coming across the book To the Bridge by Nancy Rommelman. After reading the synopsis, I was surprised I hadn't heard of the story before. It actually took place in Portland on a bridge I drive across at least once a week. Amanda didn't get nearly the attention that Diane Downs did after killing her kids. Before we get started, I want to add an extra warning to this episode. We will be discussing crimes against children, specifically neglect, emotional and psychological abuse, as well as murder. These are sensitive subjects and may be particularly upsetting for some listeners. Please exercise extreme caution as you proceed with this episode. Amanda Stott Smith, known as Mandy to her friends and family, grew up in a conservative Christian home with her younger sister Chantel, her parents Kathy and Mike, and her maternal grandmother Jackie. From a young age, she was taught that she had a duty to obey her husband above all else. Amanda's parents, Mike and Kathy Stott, were high school sweethearts. Mike worked for a commercial paper product company, while Kathy first worked as a property manager, then as a registered nurse. As a side note, there are a lot of people involved in this story, so I'm going to do my best to help you keep everyone straight. So, Amanda's family consists of her, her sister Chantel, her parents, Mike and Kathy, and her grandma, Jackie. 
Fast forward to 1997-ish, Amanda enrolled at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon, which is about 45 minutes outside of Portland. George Fox is a Christian school whose mission is to prepare students, quote, spiritually, academically, and professionally to think with clarity, act with integrity, and serve with passion, end quote, at least according to their website. I don't know if this mission was the same back in 1997 or if Amanda bothered to read it, but nevertheless, she really didn't seem to follow it. According to her friends, Amanda smoked a lot of weed and dated a lot of guys. She was described as super bubbly, fun, and spacey. Her friends said she rarely studied and she really didn't seem to care about college other than her party lifestyle. She soon became pregnant with her first child. The father was an acquaintance named Nathan. He was only 19 at the time, and he barely knew Amanda. They originally agreed to give the baby up for adoption, but six months into the pregnancy, Amanda changed her mind. Nathan joined the Navy, leaving Amanda to raise their son Gavin as a single mom. And just so you know, Nathan's not a terrible guy. He actually joined the Navy because he knew it would be a good career for him, and he would be able to earn a steady income to help support his son. Even after Gavin was born, Amanda continued to party. She took advantage of her friend's helpfulness and love for Gavin by having them babysit while she went out to party. In 1999, Amanda became pregnant again. This time, the father was none other than her pot dealer, Shane Cook. The two became engaged soon after finding out that Amanda was pregnant. Halfway through her second pregnancy, Shane drove into the woods and committed suicide. Amanda later gave birth to their child on November 2nd, 1999. She gave the baby up for adoption. Shortly after Shane's suicide and before the birth of her second child is when Amanda would meet her future husband, Jason Smith. So I want to go back just a bit and tell you about Jason Smith's background. Prior to meeting Amanda, Jason was already troubled. In 1994, he robbed his mother and stepfather's home. He stole his mother's jewelry and he pawned it to buy pot. Jason's mother, Christine Duncan, had him arrested, but his mother asked the judge not to sentence him to any jail time. So instead, Jason was given probation with the conditions that he remain employed, avoid committing any further crimes, and submit for substance abuse treatment. But of course, Jason failed to meet these conditions. From 1994 to 1996, Jason was arrested for drug possession probation violations, and both first and second degree theft. By 1997, Jason had finished his third stint in rehab. None of Amanda's friends could pinpoint exactly how she met Jason, though the most commonly cited connection is that he was one of her pot dealers. When the two first met, Amanda wasn't actually into Jason, but between 1999 to 2000, Jason came into an inheritance worth approximately $240,000. He used this money to wine and dine Amanda and basically buy her affection. Amanda graduated from George Fox in the spring of 2000, and by October 2000, she and Jason had depleted his assets down to $167,000. Jason's mom believed Amanda was financially exploiting Jason, and she actually sought court orders to try and protect Jason's remaining assets. Jason and Amanda's spending habits weren't their only problem. Just a quick trigger warning here. 
I'll be talking about domestic violence, so if you're sensitive to this content, you may want to fast forward a few minutes. Between May 2000 and May 2001, police were called to Amanda and Jason's home at least three times for domestic disturbance. On May 21st, 2000, Jason was arrested and charged with assault for menacing and interfering with making a 911 call after Amanda told police that Jason had restrained her by the wrists in order to prevent her from leaving. In June 2000, police were called again after Amanda's right front tire was slashed. Jason told police that Amanda actually slashed the tire herself. Then, on July 6, 2000, Amanda was arrested and charged with domestic assault four after Jason showed police a bite mark on his torso and two large bruises on his upper arm, which he sustained while trying to remove Amanda from his apartment. Despite the domestic issues, the couple got married in Hawaii and welcomed their first child, a daughter named Trinity Christine Kimberly Smith. During their seven-year relationship, Amanda became a submissive wife. Jason controlled her, belittled her, and some friends say Amanda was treated like a prisoner. The two continued to have money issues. Amanda would constantly overdraw their bank account, and Jason would have to borrow money from his friends and his mom to cover their expenses. According to her friends, Amanda lost her identity the longer she was with Jason. But again, despite the overwhelming volatility of their relationship, they eventually had a son, Eldon Ray Reben Smith. The family moved to Hawaii for a few years due to Jason's job. After the move, Amanda started drinking heavily. And while they were in Hawaii in 2006, DHS was actually called after Amanda left the kids in a hot car. Eventually, the Stott Smith family returned to Oregon. Friends of Jason described witnessing lots of arguing between the couple, as well as verbal and mental abuse. At some point after their return to Oregon, Amanda found out that her son Eldon was actually named after Jason's ex-girlfriend's dad. Do not even get me started on how insulting and disrespectful this is. As you can imagine, Amanda was extremely embarrassed to find out that Jason and his family had essentially mocked her to her face with this information. The marriage began to crumble in June 2008. Jason moved out of the family home that was in Tualatin, and he moved to Eugene, which was about three hours away, to inner rehab. While Jason was in rehab, his mother Christine paid all the household expenses for Amanda and the two kids. Between August and October 2008, DHS received numerous calls from people who were concerned about the welfare of Gavin, Trinity, and Eldon. In August 2008, Amanda was late picking up the kids from swimming lessons, and the police were waiting for her when she finally showed up. Amanda claimed she was getting snacks for the kids, and then got into a car accident, which is why she was late. I didn't see any mention of whether police were actually able to confirm that she was in a car accident. On September 17, 2008, Gavin and Trinity were interviewed by a child protective service worker. Both children told the worker that their parents didn't drink or do drugs, their parents didn't fight, and they weren't physically disciplined by their parents. Friends of the family described the home as chaotic and really messy. So it seems like most people who reported the family to the authorities were really worried about neglect of the children. 
Gavin said he often had to take care of his younger siblings, and he said that a lot of times there wasn't any food for them to eat. I remember reading in the book about one time where they actually didn't have any milk, and so Gavin actually poured water into their cereal bowls, and they ate cereal with water. After Jason moved to Eugene, he began taking Trinity and Eldon for weekend visits. On February 14th, 2009, Jason took the kids for a weekend visit, and he failed to return them as planned. This was after Jason's mom, Christine, had urged him to file for sole custody of both Trinity and Eldon. Later that month, Amanda, with the help of her grandma, Jackie, awarded full custody of Gavin to his biological father, Nathan. Up to that point, Nathan and his wife, Chelsea, had had numerous disputes over the years about custody and visitation for Gavin. In March 2009, Amanda filed for legal separation from Jason, citing irreconcilable differences. She also filed a temporary restraining order against Jason for taking and keeping Trinity and Eldon back in February of that year. A judge ruled in late March that Trinity and Eldon would stay with Jason pending a final resolution of the custody and visitation. As someone who worked briefly at a family law firm, I can tell you that it's one of the most contentious, volatile, and emotionally charged areas of the law. Depending on the clients you're dealing with, each dispute can become an epic battle of who can best the other and who can become the ultimate winner. It's far too common for young children to be used as pawns in this warfare, and parents are only interested in custody to obtain some kind of advantage over their soon-to-be ex-partner. It seems fairly clear to me that while Jason and Amanda probably loved their children, they really only wanted sole custody for the primary purpose of ensuring that the other one wouldn't have it and they would be the loser, and they would only get to see their kids for visitation. In April 2009, Amanda, her sister Chantel, and a police officer took a court order to Trinity School in Eugene and told school officials that she would be enrolled in a school near Amanda's parents' home in Milwaukee, Oregon. But later that month, a judge granted temporary custody of both Trinity and Eldon to Jason. Amanda was entitled to visitation every other weekend, and she could talk to the kids on the phone every night. But she wasn't allowed to see the kids without Jason's permission. Even though Jason was in Eugene for rehab, Amanda, for some reason, really seemed to believe that he would come back home. So she cut back her drinking, and she also entered treatment for depression and an eating disorder a total of three times by the spring of 2009. Amanda tried to convince Jason to pay for an apartment in Eugene so that she could be close to him, Trinity, and Eldon, but he told her that if she wanted to live in Eugene, she could get a job and pay for the apartment herself. As time went on, Trinity and Eldon began telling Amanda stories about spending time with a woman named Kelly when they were with their dad in Eugene. Amanda knew that the Kelly they were referring to was Kelly Townsend, Jason's ex-girlfriend from high school, the same ex-girlfriend whose father shared her son Eldon's name. Trinity and Eldon told Amanda that their dad and Kelly would, quote, wrestle, end quote, and Trinity actually told Amanda that Kelly was skinnier than her. Obviously, Amanda didn't take this well. Amanda and Jason didn't have a healthy relationship for sure, and it would likely be coming to an end soon with the separation, but I can totally see why this would hurt and upset Amanda. So she began accusing Jason of having an affair with Kelly, which both he and his mother adamantly denied. 
On May 23rd, 2009, it was Amanda's weekend for visitation with Trinity, Eldon, and Gavin. I didn't see this explicitly mentioned anywhere, but from everything I read, it kind of seemed like Amanda's parents either supervised or maybe facilitated Amanda's visits with the kids. So Amanda picked up Trinity and Eldon around 8 p.m. that night, and she planned to take them to see fireworks at the Rose Festival in downtown Portland, which, if you're not from around here, is a big festival that Portlanders celebrate at the beginning of June. It's kind of our big celebration for the City of Roses. It's a lot of fun. We have fireworks and there's carnival rides downtown. So she was planning to take them to go see these fireworks that happen on the opening weekend. For some reason, Gavin decided he wanted to stay home with his grandparents, so he wasn't actually in the car with Trinity, Eldon, and Amanda. So when they arrived downtown, of course, Amanda wasn't able to find any parking, which anyone who is familiar with the downtown Portland area will understand completely that parking is incredibly rare to find and super difficult, especially when a big event is going on. Amanda later told investigators that she was upset that Jason had gone to some barbecue, and according to Trinity and Eldon, she wasn't allowed to attend. So after she couldn't find parking, Amanda just drove around, and she didn't really seem to have a destination in mind. At around 12.15 a.m., Amanda stopped at a local convenience store in the Selwood neighborhood, which is not too far from the downtown area. She offered a woman $5 to watch Trinity and Eldon while she went into the store. The woman didn't want Amanda's money, but she told her she'd watch the kids, who I assume were asleep in the car. Amanda came back out a few minutes later, then she just sat in her car as the woman drove away. Video footage and a store receipt would later confirm that Amanda purchased a 16-ounce box of wine. Around the same time, Gavin woke up his grandparents to let them know that Amanda hadn't returned with Trinity and Eldon. They should have been home around 10 p.m. So sometime between 12 and 12.30 in the morning, Amanda's mother, Kathy, tried to call Amanda, but she didn't answer her phone. So Kathy decides to call Amanda's sister, Chantel, and Chantel and her husband go out to look for Amanda and the kids sometime around 1 in the morning. Unbeknownst to Amanda's sister, Chantel, and her husband, sometime around 1 a.m., Amanda drove onto the Selwood Bridge, stopped midway, and removed a sleeping Trinity from her car. She then cradled Trinity before dropping her off the south side of the bridge. Amanda then took four-year-old Eldon out of the car. Eldon asked his mom if she dropped Trinity into the water, but before he could receive an answer, he too was dropped into the water. The Willamette River, which flows underneath the Selwood Bridge, was just 56 degrees that night. The first 911 call was made at 1.19 a.m. Patty and Dan Gallagher were out on their patio when they reported hearing a splash and then heard a child yell, help me. The Gallaghers didn't know this at the time, but the child screaming was seven-year-old Trinity Smith, and she had just been dropped off the Selwood Bridge by her mother, Amanda. At 1.33 a.m., Kathy called Jason to ask whether he had spoken with Amanda. Jason told her he hadn't seen or spoken to Amanda since 8 p.m. on the night before when they exchanged the kids. After talking to Kathy, Jason also tried to call Amanda, but she didn't answer his calls until 2.49 a.m. When she picked up the phone, she asked Jason, quote, Why have you done this to me? Why have you taken my joy away? End quote. This prompted Jason's mother to call 911 and file a missing persons report for Trinity and Eldon. Jason spoke with Tualatin police at 3.25 a.m. 
they told him no one was at the family home after they performed a wellness check. When police arrived at the banks of the Willamette River, just below the Selwood Bridge, they were met by David Haig, who had pulled Trinity and Eldon out of the water. Trinity survived the 93 to 94 foot drop, but she was hypothermic due to the amount of time she spent in the water before Mr. Haig was able to rescue her. She had a sternum fracture from the fall and she was transported to Oregon Health and Sciences University. Unfortunately, Eldon didn't survive the fall. He had bruises on his face, neck, and upper chest. The coroner would later note blunt force head trauma, which was attributed to the force at which Eldon's body hit the water. Ultimately, his cause of death was listed as drowning. No drugs were found in his system. After their call with Jason, the Tualatin Police Department submitted an emergency request to AT&T for their cell phone records in order to ping Amanda's cell phone. Around 10.25 in the morning, the Portland police were able to locate Amanda. Her cell phone pinged in the area of a downtown parking garage. They found Amanda sitting in her blue Audi on the ninth floor of the parking garage. Officer Wade Greaves approached the vehicle, but Amanda leapt out and threatened to jump off the ledge. Thankfully, Officer Greaves caught Amanda by the wrist and took her into custody. When she was arrested, officers noticed scrapes on her arms, legs, and hands, which they thought might have been caused by her children's fingernails. On May 26, 2009, Amanda was charged with one count of aggravated murder and one count of attempted aggravated murder, making this a death penalty eligible case. Additional charges were added on June 3rd, 2009. Amanda was now facing five counts of aggravated murder, two counts of attempted aggravated murder, and one count of assault in the second degree for the bruises found on the children's bodies. Amanda entered a plea of not guilty to all charges. Amanda retained Ken Hadley to represent her. And an interesting true crime fact, Ken Hadley also represented Christian Longo, who is a notorious family annihilator from Oregon, and whose case I will be covering in a later episode. At the time Amanda committed her crimes, she was non-compliant with her antidepressant medications. She told investigators she had been prescribed Trazodone, Abilify, and Seroquel. It's not clear how long Amanda had been on these medications or how long she was non-compliant in taking them. When police searched Amanda's car, they found business cards for a clinical psychologist and a therapist at a local hospital. Police also found a spiral notebook where Amanda would jot down short notes. Investigators also learned that Jason's mom had told Amanda that she would need to be out of the family home in Tualatin by May 31st. When she was interviewed after her arrest, Amanda told investigators she didn't mean to hurt Trinity and Eldon, and she actually thought about going in after her children, but she changed her mind. Amanda told investigators she didn't know why she changed her mind, and she felt ashamed about her decision to do so. There were conflicting reports from Amanda about her motive for harming Trinity and Eldon. She initially told investigators she wanted to, quote, end their suffering, end quote, referring to the custody dispute going on with Jason. But later, her motive was kind of described as an act of revenge against Jason, a sort of, if I can't have them, no one can. I personally believe her motive is more on the revenge side, but there is an element of ending her own suffering. From the time she became a mother to Gavin, Amanda didn't really seem interested in taking on this role. Her own grandma described her as one of the most self-centered, selfish people she knew. So while I believe Amanda sought to end suffering that night, 
I think her motives were purely selfish, and she was only worried about ending her own suffering. The best thing Amanda did for her kids was give primary custody of them to their fathers. It's heartbreaking that she was more focused on hurting Jason than caring for her children. Amanda eventually took a plea deal and pled guilty to aggravated murder and attempted aggravated murder. Because of this plea deal, Amanda was spared the death penalty. Amanda was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 35 years. She also agreed not to have contact with Trinity or the Smith family without prior written consent, and she would refrain from drug and alcohol use during her lifelong parole. One of the more heartbreaking aspects of this story, aside from the senseless murder and attempted murder of two innocent children, is that Amanda's oldest child, Gavin, spent years not being able to see or talk to his younger sister, Trinity. Jason's mom actually filed a court order against the Stott family to prevent them from attending Eldon's funeral. While I can kind of understand where she was coming from, the end result was further pain and suffering was endured for both Trinity and Gavin. But thankfully, the two were able to reconnect in February 2016. This was actually the first time the two had spoken since December 2010. Gavin eventually followed in his father's footsteps and he joined the Navy in March 2016. He told Nancy Rommelman that he has no interest in having a relationship with Amanda. And that is the heartbreaking story of Amanda Stott Smith. You can share your thoughts on this episode with us via email at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com or on our social media posts for this episode. Check out our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, for the sources we used for this episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter at True Crime Cat Law and on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at Winston the Cat PDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.